Good morning, church family. Pray that you are all well, as it's wonderful to be back in the pulpit today and to see all of your smiling faces from up here this morning. And as for our sermon today, we will again be in chapter 6 of the Gospel of Mark, looking specifically this morning at verses 14 through 29, where John Mark shares with his readers what ended up happening to a man who we became quite familiar with early on in the Gospel of Mark, that man being that of John the Baptist, who, if you can remember, was the forerunner of the Messiah predicted by the prophet Isaiah and the prophet Malachi to prepare the way of the Lord. And John the Baptist, he absolutely did that, church, to the point that all the country of Judea and all of Jerusalem were going out to see him, to hear him preached, and to be baptized by him in the River Jordan. Which leads to the question, then, why? For why exactly were all these people going out to see John the Baptist, to hear him preached, and to be baptized by him? And the answer to that question is, quite simply, because John the Baptist was faithfully preaching to them a message of repentance. In essence, he was telling these Jewish people, church, that they were sinners, and that judgment and wrath and punishment and that of eternal condemnation awaited them unless they truly acknowledged their sins, confessed their sins, repented of their sins, and turned back to God as the only one who could ultimately then forgive them of their sins. And the outward sign of their repentance, church, was that of baptism, or for them to be immersed into the waters at the River Jordan. And what was just so striking about all of this church was that although droves and droves and droves of people were going out to John the Baptist to hear him preached and to be baptized by him, John the Baptist, he never, ever, ever lost sight of the fact that his role or his call or his personal task in God's great plan of eternal redemption was to simply be the forerunner of the Messiah and to faithfully prepare the way of the Lord. However, John the Baptist then, church, he was not only called to preach repentance and to baptize that of the sinful Jews, but as we also saw then in Mark chapter 1, John the Baptist was also called to baptize a man by the name of Jesus, to which John faithfully did in order, as Jesus Christ put it in Matthew 3 verse 15, for us to fulfill all righteousness. Nevertheless, despite John's faithfulness to the will of God and his zeal to preach the word of God and his humility to prepare the way for the Son of God, John the Baptist, as we will see today, well, he ended up just like many of the prophets before him, church, that being ultimately killed for his faithfulness. Which takes us to our thesis statement this morning, or to the main theme of our sermon this morning, which is this, the person who truly fears the Lord will naturally then walk in the ways of the Lord and will stand against what the Lord opposes, no matter the persecution that they may face. 
Again, our thesis statement this morning, church, is this. The person who truly fears the Lord will naturally then walk in the ways of the Lord and will stand against what the Lord opposes, no matter the persecution that they may face. Therefore, at this time, church, let's open our Bibles up to Mark chapter 6, verses 14 through 29. And if you are joining us this morning and do not have or do not own a Bible, then please feel free to grab and even to keep one of our church Bibles, which are located in the chairs in front of you this morning. Because trust me, we want you to have your very own copy of God's Word. However, the only thing we ask if you do take one of the Bibles is that you read it, starting today by turning your new Bible to page 841. And by joining us as we as a church family hear the word of God together this morning. For again, we are in the gospel of Mark this morning, church, looking specifically at chapter 6, verses 14 through 29, where John Mark, the author of the gospel of Mark, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes, King Herod heard of it. For Jesus' name had become known. Some said John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said he is Elijah. And others said he is a prophet like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John whom I beheaded has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death. But she could not, for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. But an opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guest. And the king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, Whatever you ask me, I will give to you up to half of my kingdom." And she went out and said to her mother, For what should I ask? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oaths and his guest, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head And he went and beheaded him in prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl and the girl gave it to to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we praise you this morning. We give you all the praise we possibly can this morning in the midst of this service. Lord, through our singing and through song, 
Lord, through our prayers, through our offering, through the preaching of your word, the way we respond to it, and as we prepare our hearts and our minds for the, Lord ta- the Lord's table. Lord, we praise you, God, this morning for it all for saving us when we were sinners dead in our sins, for calling us to Yourself, for clothing us in the righteousness of Your Son, Jesus Christ. And Lord, we praise You this morning for the future glorification that awaits each and every one of Your children. Father, in light of the courage that we see in John the Baptist this morning, to be willing to oppose the things that you hate, Father, and to stand for the things that you love, Father, I pray that we feel much conviction this morning that we have been called to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we have been called, to be steadfast, unmoving, and faithful to your word. Father, help us to do that, I pray. Convict us where we need to be convicted this morning. Open our eyes and our ears to the beauty of your word and soften our hearts, we pray. And Father, I pray this morning that you help my lisping and stammering tongue to communicate with accuracy the beauty that is in your text this morning. For above all else, church, we pray that you be glorified this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Our first of two points this morning, church, is this. Point number one, Christian, always be willing to oppose what God opposes and to call sinners to repent of their sin, no matter how powerful or how influential they may be. Christian, always be willing to oppose what God opposes and to call sinners to repent of their sin, no matter how powerful or how influential they may be verses 14 through 20, which reads, King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said he is Elijah, and others said he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death. But she could not, for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. So the King Herod that's mentioned here, church, in verse 14, is none other than a man by the name of Herod Antipas, one of the sons of Herod the Great. And long story short here, when Herod the Great died, his sons took over as rulers of his kingdom, one of those sons being that of Herod Antipas, or the King Herod that is mentioned here, who took over one-fourth of his father's kingdom, or more specifically, the region of Galilee and that of Perea. And as we go on to see in verse 14, this Herod Antipas, or this King Herod here, that he too, just like everyone else at this time, has heard all about this man, 
named Jesus. Since verse 14, Jesus' name had become known. And thus, because of Jesus' ever-growing popularity, people now, church, were beginning to speculate about who exactly they thought this man named Jesus really was. And as we go on to see in verse 14, some people were now speculating that Jesus was indeed John the Baptist who had been raised from the dead, whereas others were speculating that Jesus was, verse 15, that of Elijah, whereas others were simply speculating that Jesus was a prophet similar to that of the prophets of old. Nevertheless, despite all the speculation, And the theories and the hypotheses about who exactly this Jesus was, King Herod, as we see in verse 16, he concluded that Jesus was John the Baptist who had been raised from the dead. Now we all know, church, and as John Marks make perfectly clear in chapter 1, verse 1 of this very gospel, that Jesus Christ is most definitely not John the Baptist who had been raised from the dead nor Elijah, nor simply a prophet like the prophets of old, but instead that Jesus is most definitely the Christ and the Son of the Most High God. However, with the mention of John the Baptist here, what we get next in the text is kind of a flashback of sorts. Whereas John Mark then shares with his readers not only what happened to John the Baptist, but also then seems to display here, particularly in light of the fact that Jesus Christ just sent out his own 12 apostles, what exactly then is, as numerous commentators have put it, the cost of following Jesus Christ? Because as we go on to see in verse 17, it was King Herod Church who sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. And what is taking place here is this, and stay with me now because this is quite the family drama. So you have King Herod here, who although he was a married man, he began to then have an adulterous affair with a woman by the name of Herodias, who just so happened to be that of Herod's niece. And not only that, church, but she also happened to be married to that of King Herod's half-brother, a man by the name of Philip, as well. And long story short here, the two of them end up getting married, which obviously, church, is a big sinful no-no all around. Since, as the Mosaic law puts it, you can't have sexual relations with your brother's wife, Leviticus chapter 18, and you can't marry your brother's wife unless he dies, Leviticus chapter 20. And thus, because of all that aforementioned sexual immorality and adultery and sin, John the Baptist then who had been chosen by God to literally call people to repent of their sins and to seek forgiveness of their sins, he doesn't then simply tiptoe around their sin here or turn a blind eye to their sin here or ignore their sin here, excuse their sin here, or pretend like their sin is somehow okay here. But instead, as we see in verse 18, John the Baptist here, he repeatedly tells King Herod that it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And as you can guess, church, that type of rebuke, well, it didn't sit real well with the royal couple at this time, particularly that of Herod's new wife, Herodias. 
who, as we go on to see in verse 19, held a grudge then against John the Baptist and ultimately then wanted John the Baptist to be put to death. And again, just to make sure we are all on the same page here, church, for we have a situation here where King Herod was caught up in the act of sexual immorality and adultery and that of marrying his brother's wife. Therefore, John the Baptist then, who was literally chosen by God to call people to repent of their sins, he then rebukes King Herod here for this heinous sin, only to then be thrown into prison for this rebuke and for Herod's wife to now desire to put him to death. And thus, because of that church, to paraphrase the reformer John Calvin here, We should then behold in John the Baptist an illustrious example of that of moral courage and that he did not hesitate to incur the wrath of the great and the powerful as it was found necessary. And thus, in light of that moral courage displayed by John the Baptist here in our text this morning, church, let me then ask you all this. For are we then as a church body here at Faith Bible Fellowship Church, also willing to incur the wrath of this world and to courageously oppose the sins of this world and to lovingly call this world to repent of their sins? Or are we instead simply content as a church body to turn a blind eye toward the sins of the world and ignore the sins of the world and to just seek to flatter those who are still in love with the sins of this world, also that we do not need to incur the wrath of this sinful world. For as David Burgess shared, far too often Christians complain about how their churches only preach about sin, sin, and more sin, desiring instead to be flattered and not that of censored. However, when the matter is that of life and death, flattery church, it does not go far at all. For you would not appreciate it very much if your doctor tried to make you forget about your fever by simply telling you that your red cheeks improved your natural beauty. For you would tell him that I am paying you to cure me, not to flatter me, since all the remedies in this world cannot help you if your doctor does not properly diagnose your disease and apply the right remedy. Therefore, since the universal malady or sickness is that of sin, and since there is only one universal remedy for that sickness, that being the blood of Jesus Christ who cleanses us of all sin, blessed then is he who does not take offense at the gospel of Jesus Christ, but instead who takes refuge in it. And thus, practically speaking here, church, I mean, we really do then only have two options sitting before us this morning. For we can either let the world and our governments and our politicians and our celebrities and our influencers and the secular movements of this modern age blind those who we love, brainwash those who we love, and lead those who we love right into the depths of hell forever, all while we sit back and do absolutely nothing about it, or we can courageously, church, in light of the glory that is to be revealed to us, take our stand, oppose sin, and call those who we love to confess their sin, to repent of their sin, to turn 
from their sin and to believe in the only one who can eternally cleanse them of their sin, that being our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Because it does this fallen world absolutely no good, church, for us as the body of Jesus Christ to wink at their sin, to make light of their sin, to celebrate their sin, accept their sin, and to not share with them the only way to be forgiven of their sin. Therefore, do not, Christian, under any circumstance, let this age of darkness cause you to become intimidated or quiet or silenced or hushed about the dangers of sin, God's hatred of sin, and our ultimate need to be forgiven of our sins, since salvation only comes, church, to those who truly repent of their sins and place their faith in Jesus Christ. Which brings us to point number two. Christian, let your reverent fear of the Lord dictate how you live your life and not your fear of this world. Christian, let your reverent fear of the Lord dictate how you live your life and not your fear of this world. Verses 21 through 29 which reads, But an opportunity came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guest. And the king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, Whatever you ask me, I will give to you up to half of my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, For what should I ask? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. Now, being what we know, church, about King Herod and about his adulterous and sinful and immoral ways of life, we should not then be caught off guard here to see that when King Herod's birthday comes around, that his birthday party, if you will, was that of a night of depravity. And I say that because during this birthday party for King Herod, where his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee were all present, Herodias' daughter then, as we see in verse 22, she comes into the party and at some point then, she begins to dance, meaning, church, that the stepdaughter of King Herod here, most likely only a teenager at this time, she comes into his birthday party and likely here begins dancing before him and before his guest in a way that is sensual and seductive and lewd and obscene and erotic and cardinal. And, well, you get the point here, church, so much so that it pleased King Herod and that of his guest as well. And thus, because of that, King Herod then says to his 
teenage stepdaughter here in verse 22, ask me for whatever you wish and I will give it to you up to half of my kingdom, verse 23. And with that opportunity now presented, Herodias then, the mother of this young girl, well, she takes full advantage and thus cunningly says to her daughter in verse 24, ask for the head of John the Baptist. To which her daughter then, as we see in verse 25, says to King Herod, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And King Herod then, because of his oaths and because of his birthday guests who were present, he did not want to break his word here. Therefore, he immediately then, verse 27, sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head, to which the executioner then, church, beheaded John in prison, and then as we see in verse 28, brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl who then gave it to her mother. That's clearly displaying here, church, that King Herod feared sinful man and feared being judged by sinful man way more than he feared that of God, which ultimately then, church, led to him rejecting the very commandments of God in order to carry out this most heinous and most awful act of beheading John the Baptist. And that's because of that, church, and because of the fact that I closed point number one this morning with a charge for us all to courageously oppose sin and to call this world to repent of their sin, I think it also needs to be said here then that in order for us to be able to do that, that we as a church body also then ultimately need to fear God and not that of man, which is a fear church that should look something like this. For as the Reverend Robert Morgan explains, that when he was a little boy, his parents took him to Niagara Falls, and that while he was there, he took a boat ride right into the middle of the basin of the falls, and that his dad also then took him into some caves behind the falls where there were some openings cut out, to which he remembers that it was just a downright terrifying thing to stand there, only inches away from such power and from such a real possibility of death, all while the ground trembled beneath him as some six million cubic feet of water came bursting over the falls every minute and then falling some 170 feet into the basin below. And thus, if we become fearful, Christian, and awestruck, Christian, over a mere waterfall... How much more, then, should we fear a God who is infinitely more powerful and infinitely more immense than that said waterfall? Because that, in a way, is the type of fear needed, Christian, for us to be able to keep sin at bay in our life and to give us the foothold needed for a life of wisdom and for faithfully following the truth. And thus, with all the social pressure that is out there today, church, pressure that is trying to get you, Christian, to support the killing of the unborn or to support that of drunkenness, homosexuality, adultery, and really just that of sin. My charge then to you all this morning, church, in light of all of that is do not fall into the trap of fearing man. Whereas you desire then to be loved by man, adored by man, approved by man, and to be on the same side of history as sinful man and 
neglect then to fear God and to keep his commandments, which is the whole duty of man, Ecclesiastes chapter 12. But instead, brother Christian, sister Christian, in all that you do, and no matter what persecution you may face, never, ever, ever be afraid to love what God loves, to oppose what God hates, and to walk humbly and faithfully and boldly with your God. Since as the prince of preachers, Charles Spurgeon, so eloquently put it, those who fear the Lord church have nothing else to fear. And thus, as we begin to close this morning, church, I want to begin with the non-Christian who was here first. A non-Christian as someone who just stood here in this very pulpit and exhorted his entire congregation to fear God to oppose sin and to call those who are still dead in their sin to repent of their sin. For what kind of hypocrite would I be if I failed to do that very thing right here, right now? Therefore, if you are sitting there this morning, non-Christian, still playing in your sin, still in love with your sin, still unrepentant of your sin, then make no mistake about it, non-Christian, for you will eternally be condemned for your sin unless you repent of your sin and place your faith in Jesus Christ, who came into this world as truly God and as truly man, not only to live and to dwell among us, but ultimately to save us, non-Christian, from our very sins. And he, Jesus Christ, did that for us, non-Christian, by initially living for us the life that we could never live, and that he, Jesus Christ, lived a life here on earth that was holy and blameless and righteous and good, and thus he perfectly and completely then, non-Christian, fulfilled the righteous requirement of the law of God for the children of God, something we as sinners could never, ever do. However, fulfilling the righteous requirement of the law of God for the children of God, for that was not all that the Son of God, Jesus Christ, accomplished while he lived and dwelt among us. And I say that because Jesus Christ also then, non-Christian, paid the price for our sins that we could not pay. And that since the wage of our sins, non-Christian, is that of death, or since the cost of our sins, the price of our sins, the debt of our sins, is that of death, Jesus Christ then, willingly, non-Christian, took our sins upon himself and died a sinner's death in our place and as our very substitute by being nailed, pierced, crushed, and crucified on an old rugged cross at Calvary, and it was through this sacrifice that the children of God can now be healed. And what I mean by that, non-Christian, is that since Jesus Christ was indeed a sinless and perfect and spotless sacrifice, Jesus Christ then appeased the wrath of a holy God toward his sinful children. And to prove that that was the case, Jesus Christ then, non-Christian, he did not stay eternally dead or buried in some grave after he was crucified for our sins, but instead three days later, Jesus Christ 
he triumphantly rose from the grave and he defeated sin and destroyed eternal death once and for all and now offers eternal life to all who place their trust in him. Thus, let today be the day, non-Christian, that you turn from your sin. Let today be the day that you repent of your sin and you place your trust in Jesus Christ and in Christ alone as the only one who can forgive you of your sin, as the only one who paid the price for your sin, who died for your sin and can clothe you then in his perfect life and reconcile you back to God forever. For let today be the day, non-Christian, that you repent of your sins and place your faith in Jesus Christ. And today will be the day that you are forgiven of your sin, clothed in the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ, reconciled back into fellowship with your God forever and given the gift, non-Christian, of eternal life. And to the Christian who was here today, Brother Christian, Sister Christian, we really did have this beautiful moment in the text last week when Jesus Christ sent out his 12 apostles, and they began then, church, proclaiming that people should repent of their sins. And they were then casting out demons and healing people who were sick. And it really was, as David Garland points out, this beautiful and yet so subtle picture, church, of the continuous growth and expansion and spread of the kingdom of God. And yet today in our text, we were then met with this rather blunt reminder that despite the fact that the kingdom of God just keeps growing and spreading and expanding, church, that there is still indeed a cost of following Jesus Christ. For as Jesus Christ himself said in Matthew chapter 16, verse 24, that if anyone would to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Which leads to the question then, church, for why would anyone then be willing to follow Jesus Christ and to walk in the ways of Jesus Christ and to believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ when, quite frankly, it very well could lead to animosity and hatred and persecution and maybe even that of death? And the answer to that question is the late J.C. Ryle, right, seems to revolve around the idea that histories like these from faithful men like John the Baptist, they are meant to remind us as Christians that the best things are still yet to come. For John's rest, his crown, his wage, and his reward were all on the other side of the grave, meaning that the value of real Christianity, church, is not on the things that are seen, but instead on the things that are unseen. And thus, make no mistake about it, brother Christian, sister Christian, for if you point out to your best friend, and yes, even if it is in love, and you say to them that they are living a life in sin and that they need to repent of their sin, they might, Christian, not want to be your friend anymore. Or if you, Christian, refuse to attend some same-sex wedding in your family, then your whole family then, they might turn on you, Christian, Or if you refuse, Christian, to uh, give in to the secular agenda of this wicked age, your workplace then, they might fire you. 
And yes, Christian, if your pastor continues to rail against and preach against and counsel against this whole transgender movement, they might one day decide to throw him in jail as well. However, brother Christian, sister Christian, let us never fail to forget that in the long run, it will all most definitely be worth it. Because when the King Jesus Christ comes again in his eternal glory, church, trust me, we are not going to be worried about the nasty names that this world called us, or about the opportunities that this world stole for us, or about the hateful things that this world said about us, or even about all the pain that this world tried to inflict on us, since we will all, church, be far too enthralled with knowing the one true God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent since that is the glory of eternal life, John 17, 3. Therefore, do not let your hearts be troubled, Christian, about what this sinful world might try to throw your way, but instead, whether you eat or whether you drink, whether you are home or whether you are away, whether you are safe or whether you are being persecuted for the sake of Jesus Christ, in all that you do, Christian, aim to please God and not that of man. Since as the children of God and as fellow heirs with Jesus Christ, we will one day, church, be glorified with him, provided that in the here and now we are willing to suffer with him. Romans chapter 8. Therefore, never, ever, ever be afraid, church, to suffer for the sake of Jesus Christ, since only those who are willing to suffer for Jesus Christ will one day, church, be glorified with Jesus Christ as well. Thus it is my prayer that we as a church body continue to keep our minds focused, not on what is seen, but instead on that which is unseen. Therefore, Father, give us the grace we need to love what you love, to oppose what you hate, and to walk humbly with you, God. For let us not be a church body that willingly turns a blind eye towards sin, or that winks at sin, or that accepts any kind of sin, but instead let us be a church body that in love boldly calls this world to repent of their sins and to turn back to you, God. And Father, in order to do that, we know that we must fear you above all else. Therefore, Father, deepen our fear of you, further our reverence of you, and help us to forevermore be in all of you. Also, that we, as the body of Jesus Christ, can walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we have been called, even when the world seeks to destroy us. Since we know full well, Father, that the suffering that we may face at this present time, that it will never be worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed to us in your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, It is for that reason that fearing God is the beginning of wisdom. Father, teach us in all that we do to be in all of you, to have such reverence for you, and to fear you above this world. Help us, Lord, to fear you and to keep your commandments, to walk humbly with our God, and Lord, when we see sin, knowing that you absolutely hate and abhor sin, 
Father, let us as a church body, let us, let us as the individuals who make up this church not simply be content to wink at it or to make light of it or to allow individuals to treat it like a cute and fluffy pet. But Father, in love, let us go to these individuals that we love, to this world who we work with, to stand fast on your word and to share with them that it is sin and that their sin leads to death and that the only way to be forgiven of their sin, cleansed of their sin, is by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Father, give us the backbone we need to care for our kids, to care for the children here, our teenagers here, and anyone else being mixed up with the goofy ways of this world. To submit ourselves to your word, Father, above all else. To fear you, Father, above all else. To not be intimidated at what the world may throw our way. Knowing no matter what suffering we may face in the here and now, it will compare nothing to the glory that will be revealed to us in Jesus Christ, our Lord. Strengthen us to fight this good fight. In Jesus' name, amen.